Welcome to the WebWell podcast, brought to you by Cascade Web Development. All right, welcome back to the WebWell podcast. I am Simon, your host, along with Ben McKinley. Uh, we are here joined with Farhan. Uh, I'm excited to learn more about him and what he's up to, and I'm just going to leave the intro for him uh, up to Ben. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Simon. Thank you, Farhad, for joining us today. As I reflect on this podcast, I think back to the, the first time we met was on a best practices trip to Brooklyn, New York, I believe. Walked the, the mean streets there for a number of days and took in some uh, some really cool interviews and learned more about how, how they operate. Of course, as you can imagine, he got um, many people on the street consider, uh, assuming that he was George Clooney. Not the case at all. And then later on, we went to the Wallowa Mountains. Did far, far from it. Far. <laughs> then we found, ourselves, we found ourselves in a very different location not long after that in the Wallowa Mountains, backcountry skiing. Um, Farhad had not done a lot of that, and he was coming off of having newborns at home. So um, there was uh, a crash course into the backcountry, some great memories made there. And I think that just created an incredible foundation where, you know, we've gone on over the, the past many years and, and shared a lot of great experiences together. So it's really a, a pleasure of mine to bring in a, an esteemed entrepreneur and community member here in Portland, as well as a close friend, Farhad. And Farhad, please do help me in the audience with your last name. Uh, it's pronounced Kafarzadeh. Kafarzadeh. Thank you very Kafarzadeh. much. Kafarzadeh. Yeah. Hey, by the way, so that Wallawa trip, uh, we went, you know, hot skiing for a week. I had a newborn and I was running a fever. You had called me the last minute. I'm like, yeah. And it turns out like of all the people that I knew on that trip, I knew you, like you were one of the people that I knew less than like Christian or Ryan. They never thought of me. So thank you for thinking of me. <laughs> they didn't invite me. You did. So, and that was That's a one fun. and done. You, you guys are definitely, uh, what is, what's the nickname? You guys are the Chargers, your group. You know, I'm, I think I'm about 10 years younger than you guys, and but I was, uh, I was impressed with, uh, with the skill and stamina that you guys exhibited out in the backcountry. I was trying to keep up to little avail. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun indeed. Well, hopefully we can get you back out there with us again. Well, wonderful. So Farhad, I really enjoyed hearing your story over the years. You know, it's, and I guess what we like to do with our podcast is start off by just inviting our guests to, to share some of their backstory. And I think yours is increasingly unique because you're actually born and raised Portland guy. And, and it seems like in our melting pot, um, that becomes less and less the case. So if you don't mind taking a couple of minutes, maybe just kind of reflect back on, on your early Portland years and, um, yeah, share, share a little bit about that backstory that, that led you to, towards up to college perhaps. Yeah. Well, first off, I was born in Evanston, Illinois. So my dad was a grad student at Northwestern. And when I was one, my dad had graduated and got his first job in, uh, at Portland State as a professor. So that we moved to Beaverton. So I don't want to, I can't claim Portland. I have to claim Beaverton uh, and Close Beaverton. Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, grew up for me, I mean, I guess that the unique, the, the, the Parts of the story that might be formative would be that uh, I have you know, immigrant parents, so I'm first generation in the U.S. Uh, I was born in the U.S., but parents up until probably the early 90s were expecting to move back to Iran. They came here for um, education purposes. They weren't fleeing anything. Um, they thought they could go back to Iran and, 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 and live there amongst the rest of our family. My, my parents have uh, a lot of brothers and sisters back in Iran. And uh, so I was raised Iranian. I learned English when I was six or seven. I was raised in an expat community of 50 or so other uh, people. And most of those families growing up uh, were my, the, the parents were my de facto aunts and uncles because my real ones were in Iran. I'd see them very occasionally in phone calls. You know, don't do it justice back then with a little kid who doesn't really know them that well. I'd visit Iran every, you know, we visited a few times, but you know, uh, for the the day to day was people that we my my parents friends here the expat community here, and most of them were also grad students at some point, and they met a lot of them had met my dad 
because they were his students, grad students. So uh, the stock of onions that I grew up around were all electrical uh, or computer science type people, electrical engineers or computer science. And my dad was a PhD in computer science, and he was a grad, you know he was a professor for a lot of master students that were and uh, come in from Iran. Um, so those are the people that I grew up with, which makes a difference because that stock of uh, 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 group of friends tend to look at the world differently. So I remember my early days were really much more technical. I had, when I was like eight, I had one of those electronic uh, project boards with a bunch of resistors, capacitors, and circuits, and I'd make my circuits with those little springs and connect the Connect everything together, so I enjoyed all those things, and you know, uh, you know, helping my dad with fixing things around the house. He was pretty technically, you know, he he. My dad was someone who could fix anything with you know five tools: a cheater pipe, a flathead screwdriver, a, a small box of sockets from Pay and Pack. If you remember Pay and Pack back in the day, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and and the mother of them all, the crescent, uh, the, the the crescent uh, uh, crescent wrench. Right, the adjustable wrench. So <laughs> you could go from this big down to this big. And so with, with some leverage, with a cheater pipe, we could get anything done on the car and around the house. And my dad prided himself not only on fixing things, but doing them in a hack way. And I asked him one day, I said, you know, why don't you use like, you know, a, you, know you start to see other people using the right tools. Uh, and my dad, you know, I don't, he goes, well, in Iran, they don't, Teach, they didn't, I didn't learn how to use the right tool. I learned how to make the right tool. You make things work, which was that years later, it really served me well in terms of just the mindset, how to approach things. It's not about having the right tool. It's about um, managing with what you've got and getting it to work, which is kind of cool. So that was my long rambling intro. Um, I think a lot of the, the uh, the influences in my early life have, uh, with, with, through culture, from Iranian culture. I learned English probably five or six years old, something like that, six or seven, somewhere around there. And uh, I can still speak the language. Uh, people know I'm you know, from the U.S. I live in the U.S. I can still speak it, but people from Iran know that it's not authentically from where my family is from. But So that was a big part of it. I don't know what your, I forgot what your question was, but that's the answer I have for you. <laughs> yeah, just a little backstory on on Farhad and some of those early days. So that's a great story. Uh, and now you found yourself going to college at UC Santa Cruz. Is that right? I'm a slug. Yeah, UC Santa Cruz. You know, out of high school, I'll give you a quick kind of backstory on high school too, things that might influence the discussion later on. I, mean, I played water polo. I was on the water polo team for all through high school um, and did well, uh, you know, in high school. And I got to college, I played water polo. And when I, in high school, I was all state, you know, I was top 10 in the state. Get to California in, in Santa Cruz, uh, got cut from the team the first year. And then like, I think the second year I tried out, just barely made it I'm on the end of the bench. And I loved it. It didn't matter. I enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, I played water polo from high school and, I, I'll, I'll say I played in college, but I could probably count the minutes I played in the water in a game on one or two hands. But also in high school, I was, you know, I was active in leadership. So I, I think I was class president one year and did all the student body things as well. But out of high school, I wanted to get out of the state. Usually growing up in Portland, you want to get out to Arizona, California, somewhere warm. You kind of back then you want to get out. And especially playing water polo, California is the... Uh, hallowed grounds you know we, we we swam in indoor pool dead outdoor pools i like to surf i learned how to surf in at oswald west state park in oregon um, at short sand so i wanted to surf so uh, and in santa cruz the other thing that was really important to me later on um, was that it was near my family in san francisco so it was a one hour drive hour and a half drive to san francisco so uh, my aunt and cousins and uncle lived uh, out there so I chose Santa Cruz over state school, uh, Oregon State or U of O, um, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And when you say yeah. aunt and uncle, when you say family, was that blood family or was that again some so, of the? No, this one was blood. So I had my aunt, my aunt blood, 
but uh, on my dad's side, my my, uh, my dad's sister, I called her husband my uncle, but it's her husband. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but but growing up, San Francisco was one of those special places we get to go um, on a road trip with the family. So over the years, you know, those were the ones that we got closest to because they were in the U.S. Uh, my dad had seven, six brothers and sisters, and my mom had has three brothers and sisters. Oh wow. My mom said we're all in Iran, and my dad said everyone but my aunt uh, back then was in Iran. They've all slowly migrated to the West, but back then, yeah. And tell us how many siblings you have, Farhad. I've got two, two brothers. I'm the oldest of three kids. Uh, we're two years apart, or there's two years difference between all of us. So um, uh, I'm the oldest of, of, of the two. Wonderful. Right on. And now when you say you're a slug, you mean it. Tell us about, tell us about your, uh, yeah. The thing, okay, well, so a few things in college. Uh, I was on the water polo team. I tried to swim. I was on the swim team. I hated swimming, um, I, but I, I did it. <laughs> I did it until I stopped. And then um, there was an ad in the, the the school newspaper, the bottom corner of, like, the, the, the backside, or the, the, the back then it was, like, want ads or classified or something. The UC Santa Cruz banana slug was looking for help. <laughs> so I went and tried out. I think I was one of the only ones who tried out because I got the I, pretty quickly. She called me uh, and she said, you know, you got it. Here's the costume. Good luck. There was so, so I was a slug for two years and no one else. Uh, so, you know, 2000, was it 2003 and 2000, or 2000, 2003 to 2005, I was the UC Santa Cruz banana slug official. And, uh, yeah, that was a fun job. I really enjoyed that. Oh, man. And Ben, I think I was telling you, like, the, the costume itself is like 50 pounds. It's this bulbous, like, just foam, big thing. And so your eyes are where the mouth is. The eyes are up here. So you're tall. The shoes are oversized. Like, they're like clown shoes. But then it's funny. Like, no one knows it's me. But then people would come up to me and try to find out who it is. And be like, this guy's got big feet. <laughs> and like, they're not that big. And I learned some kind of tricks. So I could tilt my head up a little bit and grab someone's drink. Usually someone I knew in the crowd. I'd grab their water and drink through the netting of the slug's mouth, right? And people would think that was really funny. So one time I did that, I grabbed someone's water and I took a big swig. Well, they had snuck vodka into the game in a water bottle. So here I am doubled over at the game and everyone was just laughing at me. Uh, uh, so the other thing about the slug costume was that I could do a one-handed push-up. I could slam dunk a basketball. I could dance like a maniac in front of everyone with the costume on. But with the costume off, couldn't do any of those. It's like the cape. like the, You get a rush in front of everyone. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed that. So, yeah. Well, humor seems to be a big part of your shtick, and uh, and I can imagine you know cruising around and getting everyone fired up at, at sporting events and otherwise would uh, certainly certainly support that that path towards uh, some of the the world famous dad jokes that you're now very well known for, <laughs> including if I if I is are you still doing dad jokes uh, as one of the the possible voicemail selections at the on the company uh, the company phone line? Yes. No. If if you call Green Drop. You get my voice first. My Ray Romano voice comes on. Hey, welcome to Clean Drop. And, you know, for whatever location, press one, two. But if you press five, you get the dad joke of the day. Now, I need to be better about updating it. But there's always a dad joke available. So if you're feeling down, call the shop. Option five. You can skip past my long little, hey, welcome to Green Drop. Just press five. It'll route you to the pre-recorded dad joke. And I call it dad joke of the day. I need to be better about updating it. Um, but you get the dad joke. Fantastic. And I'm guessing you are honing your dad joke skills far, far be- before fatherhood actually hit. I, I, I'm, I'm that kind of guy. And I actually, it's, and my, my friends say this too, like, it's less about the joke. It's more about the reaction. And the more eye roll or groan you get, the better. Right. And, and they might be word plays or whatever else, like, you know, and, and oh, I, I know. Those sign- yeah, you know, yeah, I know. And I do that at home with 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 the family, and you know, I got kids. I got you know the not my seven and nine year old, 
both kind of roll their eyes and groan when I say them too. So I know I'm winning when that happens. And Shima, my wife, you know, pretty well, she actually physically gets agitated <laughs> with my really bad jokes. And, you know, I shouldn't be proud of that, but I'm proud of it. <laughs> because it's less about the joke, more about the reaction. She'll still laugh, but she's like, I shouldn't be laughing. I'm so, like, so, <laughs> so yeah, I, I do a lot of dad jokes. That's beautiful. Well, so Farhad, and, and coming out of college, I think this can kind of shift us back towards sort of the, the business uh, realm, but coming out of college, if I'm not mistaken, you are considering a track towards med school and, uh, and found yourself pouring beer and importing large SUVs and converting them. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about oh, kind of how that kind of came about. Yeah, yeah. So it's close. So I graduated college and my senior year, I was uh, studying for dental school at that point. I was pre-med. I did molecular biology, studied that. So I said either, you know, medical or dental. And, you know, dental seemed more efficient. It's four years, not eight, you know, or four years plus residency and all that. And in college... A couple of things happened. One, I spent one summer working with a dentist. So nice guy, uh, you know, middle-aged guy, uh, was set in his dental practice, had three assistants. And so I asked him, hey, can I, you know, help you out once or a shadow? So I go and shower to him one day, and he was really excited that there was someone there who cared about what he did. He said, hey, you can shadow me, but why don't you just help me? I'll pay you. You know, it's minimum wage, but I'll pay you. And... You can be one of my assistants and you'll learn a lot. I said, sure. So, you know, I started dressing like him and talking like him. And and I learned a lot that summer and I could do it. I enjoyed it. Um, the dentist, it was a very, it was a good summer. I really enjoyed it. I worked 40 hours a week every day. But the other thing that had happened around the same time or just a little earlier was that I had a car that ran on vegetable oil in college. Now, I want to, in college, buy a car because you couldn't go surfing. I wanted to go surf, but you couldn't go with a bus. You can't get, you're not allowed a surfboard on the bus in Santa Cruz. So I wanted a car. Cars are expensive. Gas is expensive. So I said, oh, I've heard about this new thing that someone's doing that they convert cars to run on vegetable oil. And the dining halls are, have a lot of vegetable oil. And, and they get rid of it. And I read upon it and bought a kit. And, and, and Well, I, I, let me step back off. I first had to find a car. And I saw this car on uh, Craigslist for about like a thousand bucks, which is already a really good deal. Like this old Mercedes diesel, like 1980 Mercedes 240D. And I bought that. Long story short, this might be for another conversation, but I got that car for $400. Okay. Still shiny. And I called, I named that car Fidel because it was very reliable and it looked like a Cuban dictator car. <laughs> so uh, got that I converted the vegetable oil. So all summer I'm commuting to, uh, this is Watsonville now to uh, work at a dental office. I'm commuting on vegetable oil. I'd go to San Francisco, visit my aunt and cousins uh, uh, on the weekends. And um, I was full on into, you know, getting my, my, uh, finishing up college and then going to UCSF. That was my goal. Go to UCSF, UC San Francisco, dental school, come out as a dentist and then go back and work with that dentist who wanted me to say, come back, work with me. And then when I retire, you buy my practice from me, you'll be set. It'll be a great life, right? And that seemed great. And I remember one time, you know, I, I'd go to San Francisco over the weekend and I would go to Berkeley from San Francisco on Saturday and Sunday to go study at the Kaplan Test Prep Center in Berkeley. And one night I'm studying in San Francisco and my cousin sits next to me and she's older. I mean, my cousin's about, a, she was kind of in the middle of her career. Uh, she's about, I think, uh, 15 years older than me. And, and she's a physician. She's a physician at San Francisco General, um, loves her job. But she goes, do you really want to be a dentist? And I said, no. And she said, why are you studying to be a dentist? And I said, you're right. Close my books. I had just studied. I paid for the Kaplan course. I was two weeks away from taking the test. I was one quarter away from graduating. 
molecular biology. And, you know, nine months after working with the dentist and just had everything lined up, had a letter of recommendation, everything. And I was doing pretty well on the practice test. I had paid for the test to take. So that was like the first, one of the first things in my life, I, I, I made a commitment to go against something that was pretty a sure thing. So I, I, you know, I drive back to, I remember this, I drive back to Santa Cruz, standing up, you know, by the water and I call my dad, you know, on my flip phone, my first you know, cell phone I had gotten. Dad, I'm not going to go to dental school. And, and my dad's like, you know, he's a pretty supportive guy. He's like, why don't you just take the test? And then, and then if you don't want to, don't go, but take the, you already paid for it. Take the test. And I said, no. Because if I take the test and I do well, it's valid for a couple of years. And he leaves the door open. And I'm like, I'm just shutting that door. And if I want to, I'll read, study, and take the test when I want to. And he said, you're making a mistake. And I said, I, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what set off this whole chain of events where, you know, I went back to Portland, you know, went back to back home, stayed with my, my dad. Um, and I had a car that ran on vegetable oil. So I said, I need to start to make some money and I don't have a real job. So I posted ads on Craigslist. Hey, I'll convert your car to run on vegetable oil. People started calling me and started converting people's cars to vegetable oil. The only advantage I had over like other people who were doing it better than me was that I had nothing to lose. I wasn't a mechanic with a real professional life ahead of me, stepping, you know, doing something on the side like vegetable oil conversions. I was a wide-eyed college grad with nothing to lose. So I'm converting people's cars to vegetable oil. Portland, California, people would call me. I'd, I would drive down to like Humboldt County and convert someone's vehicle and stay with them for a day or two. It was a fun time. I, I met a with lot a of good wrench. people. With a crescent wrench in hand? I, I, I upgraded slightly. But yes, crescent wrench still in my toolbox. Uh, Simon, you froze. Is that a high five or... No, I was saying five tools. You had five tools with you. Oh, five tools. I think it's like five minutes or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I still didn't have that many tools, but like I, was, I got good at engineering the systems. They're all custom. So yada, yada, yada. I was doing that, and I, I bought a boat to live on. Uh, I financed a boat. It was cheaper to finance a boat in 2007 than to rent an apartment in towns. Because when you go to the bank, you tell them you make a lot of money when you really don't. Because this is pre- Dodd-Frank, all that stuff. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Give me my boat loan. They give me a boat loan. I never missed a payment, but you know, I was converting cars to run to, to run a vegetable oil. I had no real income, no tax return type income. But when times got tough, as they usually do, I got worried and I found a job at this new eco brew pub opening up. I saw the ad. Uh, on the boat when I was really desperate to to do something um, because car, vegetable oil conversions, a good month was like two conversions. Okay. Cause they each take like 40 to 60 hours and a lot of prep time and all that. A bad month is when you do one. So it's pretty slim margin, but actually two things happened. One, I got really spooked and scared. Like, what do I do? I have a boat now. I have a mortgage. I don't know what to do. And I remember, actually, the first person I talked to about this was the guy who uh, sold me the boat, maybe about six months prior. So I had him on the boat. He was a great guy. Um, kind of one of those uh, more uh, stern, he's ex-military. And I said, you know, I'm sitting with Robert on the boat. He's like, how's the boat doing? I'm like, it's great. But, you know, times are getting hard. I don't know what to do. I'm like, this is really hard. I was complaining to him. And he gets really quiet. And then he roars. It's supposed to be hard. You think it's supposed to be getting easy? You bought a boat. Like, what are you doing? You want me to buy it back from you? Because I will. I love this boat. I'll buy it back from you. I said, I'm not done with the boat. He goes, well, then Then he gets really quiet. He goes, here you are trying to take these shiny apples off the top of the tree. You're in a conversion. It brings you in a couple thousand bucks. Okay. He goes, you, you keep missing these big apples. But look around on the ground. There's a bunch of apples that fell off the tree. They're half rotted, but half bit. Pick up an apple, cut off the bad part, eat the good part, get some energy. Then you build a ladder. And then with that ladder, you get the shiny apples at the top. Wow. What he's saying is eat crow and do something for, for uh, consistent, less money, but consistent. Then I got online and I searched for my for service part. And I found you know, a 
that Vaught had for this new eco group up. I go, I could be a server. So I go up there and you know I interview. And of course, I didn't get offered the server position. I had no experience. I got offered the busser position. So here I am, college grad. I'm a busser at a brewery. Tell my parents. They go, you're a busser at a bar. I go, at a brewery. And um, so I, you know, I worked my way up. I became a server and a bartender. But one of the big breaks came when I converted Christian, the owner's uh, uh, vehicle, to run on vegetable oil. Around the same time, the Portland Monthly did this big story on me, two-page spread on this eco-freak. I think it was October 2007 or 2008 issue. And you know, it's, it's a one-page picture, one full page of me standing under the car, converting it to vegetable oil in this one-page story. Funny thing is, the guy who wrote that story is still one of our customers today. But um, So people started calling me to convert the car to vegetable oil, and a mechanic found me. He goes, hey, I want to learn conversions with you. and I said, great, you do the conversions and maybe I can find more customers so you can do more. And I can, you know, that's where the split happened between service and production. And then he goes, well, I can also do brakes and engine work and all that stuff. I go, huh. I just remember one night it clicked with me. I was on my boat about midnight, one o'clock in the morning after working a long shift at Hopworks. So I'd work at Hopworks in the afternoon, evening, and I'd work all day on cars. Working on the cars would pay off my student debt. And in the evening, you know, Hopworks would pay for my living. And I said, let me, what about a business plan? And I remember I downloaded a business plan from the Oregon Secretary of State website. You know, just a, a generic car repair shop business plan. So I remember I, that night, I didn't go to sleep. I read a paragraph. I understood the paragraph. I deleted the paragraph and I rewrote it with my words. And that's how I learned how to run a business because then I would get to like the break even. I go, oh, here's how finance works. Oh, expense is this, you know. So I would do all of that. So I wrote my business plan in 2009, summer of 2009, and shopped it to all the banks and people that I could think of. 2009. Tough so times. I was 20, well, I was 26. The questions they would ask is, do you have any cash? No, I have student debt. Do you have an asset like a home? No, I have a boat. Your business plan is for an eco-friendly car repair shop modeled after like new seasons that teaches car care classes and converts cars to run on vegetable oil as well. Not really what we're looking for. And it's 2009. No one's really lending. All right. Want me to keep going on this? I can go through this whole arc if, you, if, you, if it's of value to you. So I was really bummed. All the banks basically laughed at me. Like they were nice, but they weren't going to fund a 26-year-old. Plus, only now do I realize, or later on, I realized banks don't fund business ventures. That's not the play. Like you don't go get, not as a 26-year-old. This was like just some zero to one kind of a thing. It's not a bank finance thing. I figured out how to finance it after I went to a friend's wedding in Oceanside. Oceanside, Oregon, not California. And I was, you know, it was an overnight, you know, you stay there overnight, but my roommate was randomly assigned to me, or we were assigned to each other, but I was assigned Jeanette Caden. I was roommates with Jeanette. Jeanette started Tin Shed on Alberta Street, that really cool breakfast brunch spot that also lets your, you have your dog on the patio. Have you guys been to Tin Shed? No. Oh, it's great. Oh, Tin Shed. Yes. Tin Shed. Tin yeah. Shed. Tin yeah. Shed on Alberta. Yeah. So after the wedding, it's like 10 o'clock at night. I'm on top bunk. She's bottom bunk. And I'm like, Jeanette, Tin Shed's so cool. I'm trying to start my shop. All the banks are laughing at me. How did you do it? She said, screw the banks. We started Tin Shed on credit cards. She her and her partner. She and her partner. So it just clicked with me. I go, huh? Okay. But then I, I got really, I go, Jeanette, what if you didn't make it? Like, what if you, you know, you get credit card debt? We're, we are conditioned that credit card debt is bad, right? It's 30%. She goes, yeah, what happens? I go, I could go bankrupt. She goes, or you go back to bartending. I was a bartender at that point. She goes, you go back to bartending and pay it down over a couple of years. I go, okay. You're right. So like the next day I committed, I'm like, okay, I'm going to max out my one credit card. It was like a $30,000 visa. 
Because up until then, I would take their cash advances that they would offer for free, right? Like 0% for like three months. And then we'll, you know, rake you over the coals after three months. But what I would do is I'd buy a car, convert it to vegetable oil, sell it, pay off the principal in a month. I was really good with debt. So before they knew what hit them, I maxed out the 30, or I, I was, I planned on doing the $30,000. So sorry, I, let me back up a little Plan on $30,000. And then what happened is I needed a place to, to, to really flourish because I was renting this small little shop, but I wanted to go big. And I saw this nice uh, building that what used to be the recyclery, the recyclery was moving out, that bike shop on 9th and Madison, that, that, that dome. And I was lucky. That's a different tangential story, but I got lucky with that lease and the landlord allowed me to move in without any financial backing. And I actually sold my boat and I lived in the shop and I maxed out my credit card before they knew what hit them. So I had like, you know, sub, I was like low 500s credit score for a few years because I <laughs> maxed out my credit card. I could just pay the minimum payment every month and just interest only and lived in my shop. So I worked 100 hours a week, hop works full time, nights and weekends, and all day in the shop. Awesome. And I lived there for uh, almost two years until I could kind of get enough to, to rent my first apartment uh, after that. Wow. Man, that's some pretty inspirational. That's, I love that story about the apple tree. That's really cool and, and a, a really cool reminder for a lot of folks that have delusions of what it looks like to, to start something from nothing. Yeah, I think, I mean, a small step forward is really, I think that a consistent step forward in what you're doing. Like you, I feel like a lot of us get paralyzed by analyzing too much or I heard this over and over throughout the years. I'd go to like these meetups, like it used to be green drinks and all these other entrepreneur meetups. And I remember I would be amongst a bunch of people who had great ideas. I remember this one lady, she had an idea to make dog cookies. The way you get like the, the, the cookie tubes at the store, like the dough. She's like, I want to do that for dogs. I'm just waiting for the right time. And I go, that's actually not a bad idea. Like, why don't you start? She's like, oh, the market's not right. And all these things. I, go, I started hearing this from a lot of people. Like, the market's not right. I'm waiting for the right time. And I'm like, and I was very lucky that at 26, 27, I'm like, it's never the right time. It's never the right time. You never get married at the right time. You never have kids at the right time. You never start a business at the right time. You create the right time. because It's the right time because you've chosen to do it, not because the world has said yes. Yep. And, you know, and I get other people like, like talk about like mac macroeconomic conditions. I go, look, you're starting your own business. Like there's no macro. You need to find 20 customers right now. And like, it doesn't matter what the macro is. It's, do you have 20 customers around you? And that's it. And, you know, my, my parents uh, were very worried for me early on. And I remember I had one, they were very worried, but very supportive. I was very lucky that they were so, so supportive. But I had one, uh, one person in my life that said, you, uh, it was like just after Obama had been inaugurated or whatever, it was the first year. And they were dialing back some tax that was for eco-friendly businesses or something. He cited that, he goes, he's doing this, take your money and run. I advise you, he said, I advise you to take your money and run and go get a real job. And even then I laughed at him. I was like, one, I never asked you for the advice. And two, because of some macroeconomic thing that affects large businesses, you're telling me that I can't find a few customers that I could do better for them than the repair shop down the street. And then someone else is like, what if you fix their car and their brakes fail? Like you'll be screwed. Like that's why you shouldn't start a business. I said, well, there's insurance for that. And we have our processes, but others are doing it. Like those aren't reasons not to. So there's a lot of people who find reasons not to do something. And I feel like there's, I want to just find one reason to do something. And and not really pay attention to the reasons not to. Let's say, let's fast forward a bunch of years, right? <laughs> it sounds like full on living on a boat, uh, shoestring budget, credit card, working at uh, a brewery, like living the dream as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I grew up working at bike shops. 
kind of live in that same lifestyle to some extent. But let's fast forward. Why don't you, you mentioned it and Ben mentioned it, Green Drop. What is Green Drop now? And then maybe even uh, a step further, I, I stalked the website. What's, what makes Green Drop really unique in the Portland area or, or just in the car mechanic space? Yeah. Well, first off, don't judge our website. We're redoing it. So we'll have a fresh website by the new year. It's a little dated. I think for car repair, it's awesome. For like regular people, it's not so great. <laughs> so, but the question, uh, what is Green Drop? Uh, Green Drop, I started Green Drop as an eco-friendly car repair shop that converts cars to, that, that fixes cars, converts cars to vegetable oil and also teaches car care classes in the evening. We wanted to empower people as well. I thought that'd be a fun model. And again, I, you know, I think I mentioned earlier in the, in, in the interview, uh, the new seasons model where I didn't want to be converting people, just converting people's cars to run on vegetable oil because the market's limited on that. I wanted to have regular people with regular Subarus or cars to come in for regular service on a regular interval. Right, so we did everything from oil change on up. We still do all three, just not as we don't. So it's a smaller percentage. I thought I'd do vegetable oil conversions would be about thirty percent of our revenue. Repairs would be like seventy percent, and car care classes would just be break even. Like it's almost a free thing. It's something for the community. We do ninety nine point nine percent repairs, and maybe one or two conversions at this point. And actually, I think it's even more environmentally friendly because fixing a regular car that's on the road is, we can do 10 of those for every one conversion. 10 of them being 10 or 20% more eco-friendly than one home run uh, of a vegetable conversion. So singles and doubles versus a home run uh, win the game. So what Green Drop is, it's a B corporation. We're EcoBiz certified. So we're the most certified eco-friendly car repair shop in the country at this point. Wow. What that means is that the practices that we employ, like we're still a car repair shop. So I'm not, I'm not here saying we're, we're saving the world. We're just making it, we're just less shitty than another repair shop, basically. <laughs> right. So we, uh, I mean, the, the the a lot of the oils we use are re refined motor oil, so it's it's actually recycled, but it still meets specifications. We just pay more for it. Low VOC and enzyme based cleaners. You know, we're actually carbon neutral. We don't tout it like we should, but we're carbon neutral in that we use you know we we, we buy wind power, we offset all the emissions that we cannot get away from. Like we have to burn natural gas to heat up our shops. We have to take cars on test drives. We offset those with carbon credits to bring ourselves to a net neutral. We also do a lot of community, you know, we're involved in the community. We have various board positions that are represented by Green Drop staff. We give back. So all these things that kind of build up those B Corporation points. So it's evolved. And now actually our official mission is to make car care suck less. Right? Car care sucks less for the customer and how they consume car care and i'll get into that in a second it sucks less for the staff because they feel like humans not cogs in the machine they're uh paid better they're taken care of more our, our benefits are in line with like good again and i was i like new seasons model so that type of a model our staff is well taken care of and, and all that and we try to make them happy uh and it's it sucks less for the environment it's not good for the environment. It sucks less. We're not here. We can't make it good. Good is uh, electric trains on steel rail. Okay. But if you got to drive a car, we're here for you. Okay. Mm. Now, uh, in, with respect to car care sucking less, when we started in the early days, it was about environmental and service. You know, of course, everyone has good service. Everyone says they have good service. We try to make cars exceptional where we, you know, like Les Schwab has free beef with your tires. We uh, would have free vegetables with your oil change, right? Just the Portland way of doing it. We, you know, all these little, we connect with various Portland uh, organizations like the, the, the Tour de Lab, the Worst Day of the Year ride. We'd uh, be at all those farmers markets. We'd 
buy local um, things like trinkets. Like, you know, most repair shops have tchotchkes that go out. We would buy like some woodworker would uh, cut out like a thousand logos for us and we'd give them out to customers, things like that. So, you know, service-wise and environmental-wise, we were better and different. But the next big thing happened, I think, maybe about six years after, five, six years after I started the company, which kind of makes sense because about five years in is when you hit your 10,000 hours. You become an expert on the first thing, right? Because you work about 2,000 hours a year, 10,000 hours. The, The next big inflection point for the company while we try to hold true our, to our initial values and, and keep growing on them linearly, meaning we keep every year we do better, but it's not this exponential quantum leap into anything. Um, it was the membership. So there used to be, you know, or not used to, I'm sorry, there, for, for car repair or anything, even in your industry, you, you, in general, you multiply the number of t- hours it takes to do a job by your labor rate. And you add the cost of goods, cost of parts, maybe a little markup, and then that's your sale price. So cost plus, right? So here's your cost, here's your uh, sell, and your margins right here. Well, I remember I was learning more and more about software as a service, SaaS, okay? And I said, well, software as a service, it used to be like, you know, Microsoft Word, you buy it for 200 bucks, they hold a few features back, a year later, they give you the patch that upgrades it, they play this stupid game where they... They try to get you to buy more. Now it's 10 bucks a month. You get Microsoft Office. They're incentivized to just do a good job and just keep it running. Okay. So the service of software was being sold. So I thought, why not do CRAS, car repair as a service? And I love the acronym too. So what I did was I looked at, I started talking about it with people, but I'm like, I hate the Jiffy Lube experience where and we have to play that game too. If we want an oil change, someone coming in for an oil change, the dirty little secret of the industry is the oil change is a break even at best. Paying 50 to 80 bucks for an oil change, you break even. Okay. So they have to sell you something on a commission basis to a high pressure. And it's about selling you stuff. Cool. And that's why no one trusts Jiffy Lube. But then here we are, your, your car comes into the shop. We're like, you do need that air filter. You do need this thing that if you, you know, you've been conditioned to say no, but you really need it. And here we are spending five, 10 minutes of our customer time talking about like a $20 air filter that we make a margin on. Sure. I said, I'm tired of selling these low, these high margin, low, low perceived value things. Let's just give it away. So I said, why don't we charge $15 a month? which is a pretty good deal and it's unlimited. And instead of looking at it as a per customer cost plus, I looked at it as a portfolio. We have, if we have thousands of customers paying the same revenue, my job is to keep my costs in line while my top line is consistent, right? Mm. So we look at it on a per month basis. How many oil changes can we do per month? Okay, and then you could see how many memberships you can sell because each person comes in once every three months on average. So, you know, we, we added some features and said, you know, hey, for all the basic stuff, the oil change, the wipers, the bulbs, the quick code scan, things that keep you from coming into the shop. You're, if you're part of the club, you just come in for free. We don't charge. You can be an Uber driver. You can come in 100 times a year if you, if you really drive that much. We got you. And the model is like an Amazon Prime where that free shipping type thing makes you, sticks you to the company. Now, everything else that we do above that, like tires, like brakes, belts, things like that, we charge. So what happened is that, well, first off, when I implemented that um, program, most of my upper management quit or was made to quit or leave in the first six months because they didn't believe in it. They said, you're giving away services because the typical oil change after the upsells, close to 100 bucks per invoice, okay? With the membership, Three times $15 is $45. So it's less than half. Like we're getting less than half the revenue for the same job. You're running us into the ground. You're crazy, basically. Actually, I got that from, from uh, all my managers who knew more than I did and were at least at least a decade older than me at that point. Uh, I, was, I, I was a pretty young shop owner. And I stuck to my guns. And so they left and, and the new people who came in really saw, saw what we were doing. So now we have thousands of members 
And that membership was key to keeping us afloat during COVID. We lost like 2% during COVID. 2% of members uh, canceled. The rest of them stayed on, right? And they're part of a club and we serve them on the lower level. But then they stay at a higher rate. They convert over to things like tires, like brakes, because as long as we actually do good, then over time, like if you go to a mechanic, the same mechanic, meaning one that can do everything, and they say your tires are fine. Then the next time you come in, they go, your tires are fine, but in six months, you'll probably need to replace them. And then by the time it comes to replace them, you built trust because they didn't sell you tires when you didn't need them. So when you do need them, you have that trust. So we're in essentially buying their trust or we're buying their, not trust, but we're buying their uh, commitment to us. And we build that trust by being trustworthy. And over time, they, they buy more from us. We're their only shop. We're getting all of the car repair, not just one section. Like Les Schwab has tires and batteries. There's a reason they never get into anything else. Jiffy Loop only does oil change and basic things. There's a reason they don't get into anything else. Even Costco, good price on tires. They don't do an alignment on the tires on the on the car because all of these. If they go past their little niche, it costs them more. They worry about their margins. They specialize in one thing. The problem is that in this world, service providers have, need to be uh, full service. Right? Gone are the days where. You know, your dad would go to the muffler shop and then the brake shop and then the oil chain shop and then the tire shop. It, your time is valuable. You you need an, a one-stop a, a one shop. Incidentally, just you know, in the market, uh, to make a, a short story long, <laughs> is, you know, we used to have bakers, butchers, convenience store, grocers, right? Now we have a supermarket. And mm-hmm. even 7-Eleven is losing market share to New Seasons, Whole Foods for, quick, for, for uh, grab and go. Everything that's, everything that's a service base, something that you don't, you have to do not that you want to do is starting to generalize and do everything under, in, in one stop because you value your time. Funny thing is the opposite is happening with things that you want to do. Like meaning if you want to go to a restaurant now and if there's more than eight things on the menu, the restaurant's suspect because they're doing too many things. They do, they're supposed to do one thing really well. There used to be the general gym. You do everything. Now there's CrossFit, barbell, uh, kettlebell, bar, bar three, climbing, whatever. It, you're specializing in things that are uh, desirable or things that are fun or elective. You Everything is uh, becoming very narrow and niche. Things that you have to do, not things that you want to do, are becoming uh, all-inclusive, like cars. Mm-hmm. Like you want to go to one-stop shop for your medical and one-stop shop for your supermarket and one-stop, you know, all those things. So anyway, that's my rambling uh, answer to your quick question. But uh, that's what Green Drop is. We, <laughs> the membership is really right. that next key going back to, to, to Green Drop. Well, no, that's that's super interesting. Ben and I lament over our car issues and, and having to change oil and all that nonsense. <laughs> but I, I love the idea of a membership. Ben, you change the oil in your Tesla? <laughs> not so not much. that one <laughs> that's but, a much uh, bigger story farhad but we'll talk about uh, that some other time <laughs> but the idea like you you said it i was waiting for the word but you said it right at the end trust right i i think that is a key part to the old school quote car mechanic where like if i get a call from my mechanic and he says you need to do this i'm thinking yep he said so because he, like you said, also told me last time I don't need to do this thing, right? It's building that trust. I like that. How did how did real estate end up turning into part of the portfolio, uh, as you said? Oh, through trust, of course. Hmm. The, that was accidental, honestly. I got really lucky in that I found a few good people who helped me through this whole process. And I got lucky that, you know, I hit, I I had a business that would occupy the real estate that we purchased. So I didn't, I wasn't an investor looking for a tenant. I was a tenant looking uh, to buy the building that I was in. And I had, you know, just some good help along the way. But, you know, I got into real estate, I think 2000, 
13, 14, something like that, um, where we bought our first building that we occupied. And just as our growth strategy early for the for, for the uh, next few buildings was purchasing. Um, so I used SBA to purchase those buildings. So I got, uh, I, got I mean, there, there's a lot of, there's an element of luck in it as well. But I mean, I'm trying to think of like how to end, like oh, what can I tell you about like owning uh, the commercial real estate that we do? Because there's, there's, there's two, there's two types of buildings that, I, you know, my wife and I own now. Of course, there's our, our home home that we got, like we, we bought that, but there's the buildings that Green Drop occupies, which is kind of not a no brainer, but it's like, if you can find a way to own the building, then your lease payments become mortgage payments. You build equity. It's good over time. That's cool. And I got lucky. Our buildings were in the Central East Side and the Central East Side has historically done pretty well in terms of uh, equity growth, value of the building has, has, has increased. And that's helped fund our company growth because we, we could use some of that equity that, in the refinance to, uh, to invest back in the company. But lately, in the last couple of years, I've been lucky that there were some buildings that were not going to be occupied by Green Trot, but I had enough knowledge of the game and enough uh, confidence in myself and the ability to make it happen. So made it happen. So yeah, there's a couple of, like this year we, we, we took over two buildings. We, I mean, acquired two buildings and it was really exciting. One of them I'm really excited about is across the street from our first location. So green drop garage on ninth and Madison. There's a building across the street. Long story short was a, uh, um, the owner passed away and her family sold it to me and it was a disaster of a building and it was a blight on the neighborhood. That's where people would camp and people would squat behind that shipping containers that, you know, that, uh, uh, were on the parking lot and people would you know hide behind it and do whatever they do. Uh, so we took it and renovated it earlier this year and it's 13,000 square feet, but we have some awesome tenants in there now. Uh, Brothers Apothecary, they're CBD tea manufacturer, and they do some work of mushrooms, the, the, not, the, not the psychedelic kind, but the lion's mane, uh, that, that class of mushroom. Uh, and they put it in various uh, uh, mediums, like gummies and things like that. But they, they're manufacturing out of there. So we have people uh, producing. There's probably a dozen people manufacturing. We've got a woodworker and we have another, uh, a, uh, someone who uh, engineers uh, turbines and things like that. And what was really cool about that building is that we took it from it being storage, no one occupying it, nothing. And the highest or the, 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 the easiest way to success was to keep it as storage. I could fix it up, but then just rent it out as storage. But instead, we invested in it and fixed it up. We redid a lot of the building, put a lot into it. And we have makers, fixers, and doers in the building, which is really cool. We get to, you know, I get to have a building that has people doing something in it. And, you know, and Simon, you haven't been in Portland uh, for a bit, it's like you're in Spokane. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. The, so do you remember the OMFG building when you're going over the Burnside Bridge? It says... Long live the wild cards, misfits, and dabblers. Yep. Yeah. So there's that sign there. And that always graded on me because a wild card, misfit, and dabbler is someone who is, meaning they're just being. And it's kind of selfish. You're dabbling. That's cool. That's what I did as a kid. But when I grew up, I started making, fixing, and doing. And that's what we have on our side. So I, as a repri or as a Response to that in the same font, in the same color scheme, which is black and white, I have long lived the makers, fixers, and doers on my building. When you're driving over the Hawthorne Bridge, you'll see that when you're going towards the Hawthorne Bridge, because those are constructive adjectives. You're considering the customer, not yourself. When you dabble, you don't think about anyone but yourself. Being a wild card is just being like, there's nothing constructive about it. That's old Portland. That's Portland where people came to retire. Well, or whatever, the young people came to retire. That's what Fred Armisen said, uh, Portland of 2012, circa 2012. That's all cool. I, I've, I've been there. Uh, I was that. I was, I was that person. 
But now, you know, uh, with all the complaints about Portland getting expensive, all that other stuff, it's actually a good time because you now have to actually do something of value and trade that value for a living to make it work in Portland. It was actually too easy back then. You could do anything and it would work. So I feel like a lot of us that may be complaining about, you know, uh, someone moved my cheese in Portland, like it's getting harder. Well, make something for someone who values it, right? You actually have to consider your market. You can't just be, you have to do something as well. It sounds like something that Yoda would say, right? You can't just be, you must do. But <laughs> anyway, uh, that's one of my buildings. I, I keep going on tangents. Sorry, that, that's one of our, the buildings. And, and we just took over another 30,000 square foot space. Uh, Close to where your rail yard or your rail cars were, actually overlooking yeah. where the rail cars were. So right against the OMSI Industrial District. And that's a really fun project as well. Well, really cool to see you investing in in that neighborhood that, that Cascaded operated out of for the better part of our life, you know, both in the Ford building and 11th and Division, as well as in the rail cars now the last 10 years. And, and now we're, we're more remote, but uh, really exciting. And I think we can also link your uh, your... Let me get the words right here. Angry love letter to PDX, where you oh, highlight yeah. more of these things in detail about inviting people to yeah step up to the plate. And and as Wyden Kennedy said, Portland is what you make it. So I'm I I definitely was inspired by that message. And and far I think that's a, probably a pretty good place for us to wrap things up here today. Um, you've really given us some some cool you know inspiration on on your experience, your story, and I've really really appreciated your what felt to me sometimes contrarian approach to real estate, you know, during the pandemic and, and the, in this last year, feeling bold and confident and moving forward with a vision of what the future could look like instead of sort of waiting around for someone else to, you know, make those moves and, and eliminate some of the risks. So I think Portland owes you a great, a great of debt of gratitude as well as, as well Actually, as the Southeast. Ben, a great of datitude almost makes sense. Datitude. Ah. There we go. It all comes well, I, around. It all comes around. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, but yeah, I, I don't think it's, well, one, that's really nice of you to say that I was inviting people. I was, I was just angry and wrote that letter and, and, and telling them like, you know, quit whining basically. So there's another, another letter forthcoming at some point in the near future. Um, but I, I think, I, I guess it goes back to how I started Raindrop. You know, when people say, wait, you know, it's timing is not right. Well, there's cycles. And actually, when everyone's running away from things like this is when you, if you step in, this is not altruistic. I'm not doing, I mean, I love my city. I can call it my city. but I love my city, but it's not about that. I want to do good, but doing good is how you become successful, not why. I'm not here because it's just doing good. I'm also here because I want to invest. I want to see a return on my investment. I want to take care of my family. So it's not about this altruism. It's that I feel like I set up the game to where it's win-win. And then I take those risks when others aren't uh, on some of these things. And I'm not unique. There's a lot of other people doing that. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll talk to Ryan if you haven't already. Uh, Ryan took a massive risk with his with with his uh, uh, flagship uh, out in Northwest. And there's some others who are doing some interesting things in Portland. So it's not all about altruism. It's about just setting the game up right. And then you play to win. But when you win, others win too. And that's how that that's, it's not extractive. It's like this abundance mentality where you can do that and get your return and have people employed and have someone else to win basically uh, uh, as a result of you winning. So no, but I appreciate it. And, and this is always, it's always fun doing things like this like the podcast and all of that. And uh, and I'm sorry if I've rambled too much because I think I, I meander sometimes on my stories. Makes the job easy on Simon and myself. So we thank you. And, <laughs> and now, Farhad, I believe uh, I'd like to recommend your newsletter uh, if that's still something you're active with. But where are some other ways in which people can follow along, keep tabs on, on what Farhad's thinking and doing? Well, I'm getting better at it, but I have an Instagram with dozens of followers. <laughs> at Farhad PDX. Okay, so if I, I, I will be like, oh, I got a follower. Like, oh, and it's not a bot. Like, that'll be amazing. Uh, so if I get a follower, that'd be cool. Green Drop Garage uh, is the other one. And our newsletter is one where I have included just customers and family and friends 
You can sign up for the newsletter on our website at greendropgarage.com. I feel like maybe I should be posting some of that stuff in another arena because I have a lot, most of my energy goes into my newsletters that are anything but car repair to our customers. Uh, for our car repair customers, they get nothing about car repair. It's everything about the, the uh, what's going on in my mind about whatever. I feel like I'm an Andy Rooney at some point, like an, a less angry Andy Rooney. Like, <laughs> I just... Uh, just uh, uh, writing my opinion. Yeah. Well, this has reminded me I need to get on that because it's been re recommended to me by many of our friends along the way. And uh, those are those are thoughts that I, I like to digest. So, Fart, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, boy, the way this conversation went and some of the stuff that we left off, I think we're probably going to be hitting you up again at some point to do a follow up and uh, peel back the layers sure. on, on some other aspects. So, yeah, thanks again for, awesome. for joining us. Look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brad.